Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good evening. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm the other pastor here, and you're joining us this evening in the second week of a series that we've just started called Dealing with People. And the reason we're in this series is because I've been thinking about the upcoming holidays, and as I've been thinking about life emerging from this pandemic season, I find myself thinking that one of the things we collectively, as people, need to relearn is how to deal with people, how to actually be with people. We've spent so much time apart how to be with people face-to-face in close quarters, how to have Thanksgiving dinner and actually carry conversation, and how to navigate these relationships with people, especially because people are awful (laughs) and wonderful and harsh and encouraging and sinful and everything in between. People are people, and people can be really difficult to deal with, and we need to relearn how to do that, and maybe not just relearn, maybe even learn new skills, new ways of interacting with people from Jesus before we step into particularly difficult situations, and maybe situations where there's conflict and there's hostility. And so last week, we started with Jesus reminding us that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, the things that come out of our mouths, even in the heat of the moment, come out of our mouths because they, are, they were in our hearts in the first place. And so in order to change what comes out of our mouths, we actually need to have our hearts changed, we need to have our hearts healed and purified. We need to, to deal with what's inside before we can deal with what comes out. And last week I told a story about a time where I was in fifth grade and Miss Thompson was my teacher and she asked for everyone to turn in their homework and out of my mouth came the kind of word that's not supposed to come out of your mouth, particularly in fifth grade in Miss Thompson's class. And I shared with you how I had to go home and I waited for my father and I had to give an account of the word that had come out of my mouth. But what I didn't share with you last week was what account I gave. What was the story that I had to share with my dad when my dad asked me, where did you learn these words? Well, without skipping a beat, in response to my dad's questioning, I very easily said, well, the the kids on the playground, knowing full well that, if anything, I was probably teaching the kids on the playground. (laughs) But it came out so easily. It came out so readily. You know, and what this gets at is I, I think we have this tendency to try to wiggle out of responsibility when we're confronted with it. We have this tendency to try to find somebody else that we can pin the blame on so that we don't have to take responsibility. 
And so we're going to wade into that tendency this evening. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7 and have the words of Jesus, again, teach us about how we can deal with people in our lives. And so if you want to follow along on the screen, you can. But listen as Jesus speaks to us this evening. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to to come to you, to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to deal with people. Those people that you have fearfully and wonderfully made. Those people who are certainly not perfect. Those people that challenge us in all sorts of ways. Lord, help us to deal with people in the way that you would deal with people. You would have us deal with people. Let us learn from you this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So that first verse, I think, is a favorite of today's world. That first verse that we read was, do not judge or you too will be judged. And man, that is a favorite for us as people to toss around. We love to toss it into somebody else's face. Because, and it's usually because it's applied in this way. Don't judge me, right? D- don't, don't judge the choices or the decisions I'm making. Don't judge my preferences. Don't judge how I'm living, right? Don't judge me or, man, we even like this better because Jesus adds a whole other layer. Don't judge me or you will be judged. So back off. But see, here's the... That's not the way Jesus is applying this statement. That's not what he means when he says this here and in this context. This word for judge can actually be used a number of different ways, just like we have judge that can be used in a number of different ways. In the Greek word can actually be used simply to form an opinion, right? Come to a judgment about a particular situation or thing. It can be used to form a judgment between two selections, two preferences, two options, right? Do you want want Mexican food or Italian food for dinner? My judgment is Mexican food. I'm not from Jersey, you can tell, (laughs) right? So it can be simply used between preferences, but it can also be used in the sense of condemnation to pass an unfavorable judgment about someone Right? And so it's got all of these layers of connotation and meaning. And Jesus is absolutely warning us not to pass absolute judgment of condemnation on someone. As if we could know whether they are condemned by God or if they are in God's favor. He's warning us to be careful. Not to try to decide who at the core is worthy of God's acceptance and who's worthy of God's rejection. Be careful not to condemn. But he's definitely not saying don't form opinions, 
He's definitely not saying don't evaluate between ways of living and which is best and which is worst, or else he would be blowing up his entire sermon that he's in the middle of giving because just a a moment later he's going to say, you hypocrites, is that a judgment? Seems like he's making a judgment that their way of living is not the best way of living. He's coming to a conclusion about the way they are living, and he's saying that's not a good way of living. And so we want it to to basically mean, yeah, don't judge. In other words, you get no say about how I live. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus has a whole lot to say about how we live. And he'd encourage us to make discerning decisions about what are the best ways to live and what are the worst ways to live. But he's calling them hypocrites because he's saying to them, hey, the same way that you are judging others, you're condemning others you're going to be condemned because it's with the same measure that you use to come to your judgment about them that will be used against you. And what he's getting at is these religious leaders that he's talking to had this tendency to evaluate everyone according to the law. This was, they were being faithful to the Jewish law. And so they were evaluating based on the outward performance of everyone's lives that you can see, and they were saying, that person's good, that one's bad, this one's acceptable by God, you surely aren't. And so they were creating this whole system where it was by their performance. And Jesus is saying, hey, careful, if you want to be based, judged based on your performance, it's going to be judged that way. And guess what? Your performance isn't all it's cracked up to be. Because you're walking around focused on the specks in everybody else's eye and you are neglecting the plank that is in your own. What a vivid image, right? I mean, sawdust. I mean, I could hold up, you know, on the tip of my finger, I could be holding this speck of sawdust and you would not be able to see it. But if we just took this plank for a moment... (laughs) Ow, I think I got a splinter right? I mean, it's a pretty vivid image. You're so obsessed with everybody else's behavior that's a speck in their eye when you've got these giant planks in your own eye. There's all sorts of ways that your lives aren't working, that if you're going to be measured based on your performance, it's not going to go well. And when we start thinking about what he's getting at, in the cor- and particularly as it plays out in these relationships, you can imagine the interaction between the Pharisees and between those that they would consider you know, condemned, judged, and the conflict that starts to come out. And they're you know, coming and attacking them for the way they're living, and all the while not seeing that their own condemnation, their own vitriol, their own attack is contributing to their, their condemnation. And when we start thinking about it in the course of our own relationships, we start thinking about situations of conflict in particular, man, this is such an important passage in terms of dealing with people. I mean, just think about the last time you were in conflict with someone. What was your first gut instinct? What was your first, you know, thing that you just, you went for? Was your gut instinct to make sure that you didn't have a giant plank in your eye? Or was your gut instinct, like so many of us, to figure out exactly how they had harmed you, what they had done that hurt you, that that was a sin against you, that the ways that, all the ways that they were wrong? See, I think our natural human inclination is to look at the speck in other people's eye 
and ignore the plank, ignore our contribution to the conflict, ignore how we have been hurtful towards someone else. And so rather than saying, I'm sorry for what I've contributed, for what I've done to you, for how I've hurt you, we seek to shift the blame. We, we start looking for scapegoats, right? The scapegoats are those that, that end up taking the fall, that end up being the, the, the one that holds the blame, whether they actually were the ones that deserved it or not. And then we start looking for scapegoats. Actually, scapegoats and this tendency is so core to our human life that like, you, could, you could come up with dozens and dozens and dozens of television and movie plots and stories be, that are based on this, this exact thing, couldn't you? Where two people are in conflict or somebody's done something to someone else, and rather than simply taking responsibility for it, recognizing the plank in their eye, it becomes this whole contrived, convoluted effort to cover it up or to get somebody else to have the blame or, when it could have all just gone away. And inevitably, it makes things worse. It becomes a horrible ordeal. Last night, we happened to, to catch a part of the movie Sandlot on TV, which is just a great movie. Uh, just commend it to you. But in this movie, this boy goes and he steals his stepfather's baseball, this prized baseball. Now, in his ignorance, he didn't know who Babe Ruth was, but it had been signed by Babe Ruth. And he took that ball, and in order to impress his friends that he had a baseball that they could play ball with, you know, he brought it out, and they pitched it, and he hits the home run, his first home run ever, right over the fence into the backyard where the beast lives. This giant dog that legend had it had eaten a child. Right? And rather than go and knock on the front door and apologize, sorry, I hit a ball into your backyard, could you help me out? comes this elaborate plan to figure out how they're going to overcome the beast and they're going to get the ball back. And, and, and it makes for a wonderful story, right? But man, how much of that could the, the escapade and the chaos that came with that could have been avoided with a simple knock on the door, sorry, acknowledge to the stepdad, I, I'm sorry, I, I did this, I, should, I know I shouldn't have, I know you love that ball. But it does make good movies, doesn't it? But it makes good movies because it's so relatable. It makes good movies because we too want to avoid responsibility. It's the kids on the playground. It's not me. We don't want to have to say we're sorry. Man, why is it so hard to say we're sorry? It's something that we have to teach and train into our children from the earliest days, don't we? For some reason, they don't just naturally come up saying, oh, I'm sorry for the inconvenience that I've put into your life. I'm sorry for my selfishness. I'm sorry that I haven't listened. I'm sorry for my disobedience. I'm sorry for the, all the things that I've done. That's not a natural instinct. We have to actually be trained to say we're sorry. Why? And as if kids are bad, adults are way worse, aren't they? Because they've been training for years on how not to say sorry. I think there's a lot of reasons, but just some of them I, I want to give as possible thoughts for us tonight to help us reflect on perhaps why we don't say we're sorry. I think the first is just good old-fashioned denial, right? If I don't admit that it happened, then it didn't really happen, did it? And so if I don't say I'm sorry, then I haven't really caused any harm or I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't created a problem. 
No apology, no problem, right? We just hope that it'll go away if we ignore it. I think there's definitely a fear of rejection that comes along with offering an apology, especially maybe not in in direct moment of conflict, but maybe you've done something that's created a problem for someone else and they especially didn't even know it. Man, you just kind of want to hide it, don't you? Especially if you, if you do care about them, or you admire them, or you want to impress them, and you have to come kind of with your tail between your legs and acknowledge that you have failed to live up to the standard that you're expecting that they have of you, and because you've failed to live up to that standard, our expectation of, in our fear is that we're going to be rejected. And actually, that's not a totally baseless fear, is it? Because you've probably had people in your lives who have rejected you because you've failed them. You've hurt them. And so we have this fear of rejection. I think another reason we struggle with saying we're sorry is because sorry, saying you're sorry is kind of like a sign of weakness. You know, especially, you know, guys, we, we're not very good at saying we're sorry, are we? And it really is perceived that way. And I wonder, actually, how many of you in, your, in this room can remember your dad saying he was sorry? Can you remember your dad saying he was sorry to you? It's not something particularly among men that we have elevated as worthy, admirable. As a matter of fact, we don't say we're sorry because we're men. I'm not even sure exactly why, but we don't, because that would be weak, and we're not weak. We want to be strong, and so we don't say we're sorry, because there's this, I do think that we feel incredibly vulnerable when we say we're sorry, don't we? Because there is an element of saying we're sorry that's, that's revealing, bearing some of our soul, some of our being, and we're kind of putting our heart into somebody else's hand that, that lets them then decide how they're going to treat us. Because instead of being defensive, instead of kind of trying to shift the blame, instead of, of you know, getting somebody else on the hook, we're just saying, nope, it's me. So what are you going to do with that now? Because I'm not perfect. Saying we're sorry, for some of us, certainly makes us feel this loss of power, this loss of status. I think it's one of the reasons that we as parents struggle to say we're sorry to our kids. I mean, I know I do. They know I do. And I think part of it is because there, there is a dynamic that, well, you're supposed to be the parents. You're supposed to be doing it right. You're supposed to be guiding. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be in the right, and to say we're wrong would be a loss of power and status, and we don't want to do that. Maybe an acknowledgement of our own failure as a parent. Kind of at the, ba- at the bottom of all this, I think for us, is, a, is this sense that there are always winners and losers, a lot of our, our, our society works on the basis of winners and losers, doesn't it? And, and so we kind of have that scoreboard of life of, of those who are winning seem to have things going their way. Those who are losing don't have things going their way. Those who are winning don't seem to have to backtrack. And those who are losing seem to be stumbling over themselves. And to say we're sorry is a stumble. It's a loss. It's a backtrack. 
and somebody's probably gonna get ahead of us, and maybe, in fact, when you've admitted your fault and have said you are sorry, there might have been a time where somebody was able to use that to their advantage and advance their own agenda. So we fear saying we're sorry because, man, we might keep, we might lose even more. And so, These are all forces, and there's probably many others that you can think about in your own life that cause us to ignore the plank in favor of looking at everybody else's speck, because if I can find your specks, then perhaps I can feel like you're the loser for a minute, and I'm the winner. And in our relationships, man, that is not a very healthy dynamic, is it? Because if, if we're trying to win at our relationships, then there's nothing of authenticity, there's nothing of vulnerability, there's no, nothing of mutual care and admiration and support. It, it becomes, well, competition. And it's not safe. And so if, if we're dealing with people in our lives without an ability to say we're sorry, then we may actually be undercutting the quality, the character, the authenticity of those relationships. So how, in the midst of all this fear and all of these forces, can we, in fact, become people who will say, I'm sorry, who will take responsibility, who will own our stuff? I think the answer begins to reveal itself from Leviticus chapter 16, which was read for us earlier. A a strange reading, probably, if you're not familiar with it, it comes out of, out of this whole section that's talking about the Day of Atonement, which was the day for God's people, once a year, high holy day, where the people collectively confessed their sins and sought God's forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but also with one another. And as a part of this, they'd offer incense, and they, you know, they, they'd have this whole day of fasting, but they also would take two goats— and they'd cast lots, which was kind of like rolling dice and allow God to decide which goat got which, which final outcome. And one goat they would, they would use as their sacrifice. They would take it into the tabernacle, and they would slaughter it, and they would offer it on the, on the altar as a sacrifice to God. The other goat was taken, and with all the people gathered, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and would confess the sins of the people. And by putting his hands on the goat, it would transfer the sins of the people to the goat. And then they would take this goat out into the wilderness so far away and into a situation where they knew for sure that it was going to die in the wilderness and could never bring the sin back into the camp. It was literally the scapegoat. They put their sin, their fault, on the goat who took it to its own death. And they were purified. They were forgiven. They were reconciled. And we have a scapegoat. And I'm not talking about your in-laws. So stop thinking about them. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm not talking about your kids. We have a scapegoat. Jesus is, in fact, our scapegoat. He is the one who went outside of town onto a hill to die. He was the one who came to take on our sin. Right? We, fear, we fear rejection. 
He was rejected not only by man, but by God. We fear being seen as weak. He took weakness to the nth degree, to the point of death, so that we could have his strength. We fear vulnerability. He was exposed completely, bodily and spiritually, on the cross. We fear losing power and being losers. He lost everything so that we could have from him the acceptance that we're so afraid of losing, the strength that we're so afraid will be taken from us, that we can have it all. And and when we lean into that reality, that's what the good news is for us. In the midst of our relationships where we're dealing with people and we seem to be failing and the planks are very evident in our own eye, we can start to say we're sorry, especially when we grab hold of the gospel. The gospel actually gives us power to say we're sorry, not to be perfect. I think some of us as Christians, we get this wrong. We think the gospel somehow makes us perfect people. You believe in Jesus, somehow you need to be above all of, all of sin. You need to be somehow in your relationships, you need to no longer be short, you need to no longer be you know, hurtful, you need to, that somehow we, there's this image out there that it, once you've become a Christian, you need to be perfect. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says because you're not perfect, because you keep hurting people, because you're not dealing with them well, because you keep looking at their specks and forgetting about your planks, you are in fact in need of a savior, of a scapegoat, so that he can take what we deserve. We can start taking responsibility for our failure because we also know, though, that we are not ultimately judged in terms of condemnation. You are not condemned when you come to God in Christ. You instead are received with love and acceptance because it's no longer about your ability to be perfect. It's about Jesus's perfect sacrifice. And when we grab that, I think then we can become more bold in terms of saying we're sorry to God. Like, we can practice this. If followers of Jesus are not the best at saying we're sorry, then it's probably because we're not practicing confession in our relationship with God. Because the most fundamental relationship we have, we are constantly failing, we are constantly putting planks in our eye, and there's no speck in his eye. And we... We're invited to constantly say we're sorry, constantly confess our failure, and constantly over and over again to receive his forgiveness, acceptance, love, restoration, because the scapegoat took our failure. And as we practice that and practice that and practice that and find that ultimately our worth and identity are rooted in that fundamental relationship with God, then when we're in relationship with other people, we can begin to take responsibility as well. We can say, I'm sorry, when we fail the people in our lives because we don't need to worry. If, if they choose to reject us, then they choose to. But we're not rejected because we're accepted in Christ. If they choose to use our weakness, our moment of vulnerability, our failure as their moment to get ahead and take advantage and have the opportunity, it's okay because ultimately your fullness, your wholeness, and, and everything you need is in Christ. And so as we we think about this, as you think about dealing with people who may be difficult in your life to deal with, man, I'd invite you to, to hear from Jesus, hey, the first reaction is check for planks. 
and say you're sorry. And then there's something amazing that becomes available to us. Because Jesus doesn't say specs don't matter. Matter of fact, specs matter a lot. If you've had sawdust in your eye, it's not like it's no big deal. It hurts. You want to get it out. And so the people in our lives that we're dealing with, that we may be in conflict with, have contributed something to the conflict, have hurt us in some way. That matters. It's a problem. It's a speck in their eye. But Jesus is wanting to make it so clear. Hey, get the plank out of your eye before you try to deal with anything in anybody else's eye. I mean, can you imagine? Just, a, just imagine a, an eye surgeon, you know, with a plank in their eye. Is that the person you want taking whatever it is that's in your eye out? I don't think so, right? You want them to be real clear before they start poking around in your eye, and you know, that's, that's a big deal. And that's what Jesus is saying. Say you're sorry. Confess to God and to one another. Get the planks out of your eye, and then you can see clearly, and then you can actually help the people in your life get the specks out of their eye, which are hurting them and hurting others. And next week, we're going to talk about healthy ways to do that. Healthy ways to deal with when somebody else's speck has caused pain for you. When they've hurt you. But before we ever deal with everybody else's problem, Jesus says so clearly, hey, come on, deal with your stuff. In Matthew chapter 5, which, which is a part of this sermon that he's giving, He says, hey, if you're on your way to worship, if you're going to bring a sacrifice into the temple, and you remember that somebody has something against you, in other words, you did something against someone else and they're still upset about it, if you've hurt somebody and and they're having issues because of it, hey, leave your offering right there and go and be reconciled to them, and then you can come back and bring your offering. That's how much Jesus cares that we are being reconciled in our relationships as we deal with one another, as we pull the planks out of our eye, as we apologize for the hurt that we have caused other people, he's saying, don't bother to come to worship. He, He wants us to come to worship. But he's saying, these relationships are so important, so fundamental. You gotta be reconciled in order to bring this offering that you wanna bring to God. And we can do it as we remember that we have a scapegoat who takes on our failure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this truth even as it's hard. Even as we recognize our tendency to look at the ways others have hurt us and the specks in other people's eyes rather than looking at the planks in our own looking at the ways that we have harmed others, the contributions that we've made to the conflicts, the ways that we have created problems. Lord, may you give us wisdom as we deal with people. May you slow us down from being defensive, from giving in to those natural instincts, but allow us to have the ability to get the planks out of our eyes so that we can deal with the specks in others. Lord, we thank you that that Jesus stepped into our place to take on our failure, to be our scapegoat, so that we don't have to have anybody else 
but we can hold on to him. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Continue your work of transformation in us. In Jesus' name. 